You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. Today, I am talking to Brian Earp, who is coming to us from New Haven. And Brian is the Associate Director of the Yale Hastings Program in Ethics and Health Policy. And he is also a fellow at Oxford University. We are going to talk today about infant genital mutilation and in particular about male circumcision. I guess the history, the ethics, the politics, the religious aspects, and whatever else occurs to us. Welcome, Brian. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. I'd like to start perhaps by talking a little bit about the history of circumcision in America, of secular circumcision. Could you run us through that, Brian? Sure. The, the basic background is that circumcision started outside of a religious context in Victorian England. And if people want to read that history, there's a wonderful book by my colleague Robert Darby. It's called The Surgical Temptation, The Rise of Circumcision in, in Britain. And as he documents, there was a concern with childhood masturbation at the time, which was thought to be the cause of all sorts of medical problems. So in this period, there was something called the nerve force theory of disease, where doctors thought that stimulation of nervous tissue caused all sorts of horrible problems like blindness and joint disease and so forth. And the thought was that by, by preemptively removing sensitive tissue that the child would be inclined to play with, then they could prevent uh, all these problems that were supposed to follow from that. And this was then exported to Puritan New England, where it was also seen as an attractive idea to try to discourage masturbation among children, which was seen as both uh, medically a problem and, and morally a problem. And there was this alliance then between the, the religious and the medical worldviews at the time. And uh, this persisted for a while until... It got a boost by uh, a, a very ambitious orthopedic surgeon named uh, Louis Sarah, who I believe later became the president of the American Medical Association. But basically, he thought that circumcision could cure, you know, club foot and uh, it just all kinds of uh, different problems, again, because the standard of medical knowledge at the time was, was so impoverished. And so you didn't have controlled studies, for example. But nevertheless, it became a part of the culture and it became something that doctors did. And doctors themselves then were circumcised uh, when they were infants. And so now they're in the medical seat and calling the shots and assuming that the thing that happened to them must have been done for a good reason. And that's uh, initially how, how the ball got rolling. And it's just kind of carried on through inertia and new justifications every generation for why circumcision should persist. But it's only the United States that uh, does uh, circumcision on a majority of, of, of boys for non-religious reasons. The European colleagues don't do this anywhere else in the world that's not done uh, for, for non-religious reasons. Um, so I gather Kellogg had something to do with, Kellogg, the guy from the cornflakes, had something to do with the um, some of the early campaigns 
uh, pro-circumcision anti-masturbation campaigns in the States? That's right. So people are familiar with Kellogg's Corn Flakes, and Kellogg was part of a, a very conservative uh, religious sect that was opposed to all kinds of enjoyable stimulation or any kind of stimulation that was seen as excessive. And so people know about cornflakes that it's a very bland cereal. And that was part of the point. It was meant to be not very stimulating to the tongue. It was supposed to be easy to digest so that it would pass through the digestive system without causing any undue stimulation. And so uh, Kellogg was very excited by the idea that if you removed the most sensitive tissue on a child's penis, then they wouldn't get any unnecessary enjoyment from uh, touching themselves and it would discourage masturbation. So he advocated that this be done without pain control so that it would associate in the mind of the child uh, pain and uh, pleasure so that when they were motivated to try to pursue pleasure, they would instead think of the pain. And that was uh, something that was, again, an, an attractive view in, in early American medical history. After the sexual revolution, uh, doctors stopped citing dulling the sexual organ as a as a virtue. But up until about the 1960s, when you look at the medical journals and articles and the prevailing view, it was that it was a good thing that circumcision, which everybody knew, uh, made the penis less fun to touch. And that would encourage men to lift their spirits to more noble pursuits and so forth. And it would discourage children from polluting themselves. Uh, and, and as soon as it, it became uncool to be anti-sexual, you notice that these justifications suddenly drop out of the medical literature in about the 1960s, and all of a sudden you get some new excuses that come in. Uh, so that's a, that's a further interesting dimension to this history. Mm, wonderful. Um, just for fun, I think I'd like to read a little uh, extract from a case study, medical case study here. This is from the Edinburgh Medical Journal. Um, R.I., aged 20, of slender form, sunken eyes, pallid countenance, and considerable emaciation, stated that when placed at a public school at the age of 12, he had been induced by his schoolfellows to indulge in the habit of self-pollution. The fruits of his academical labours will never compensate for the mischief incurred from a solitary vice taught him by a depraved companion. Thus, overwhelmed in misery, he has languished almost without any assistance and is the more to be pitied for what memory he has remaining and of which he, for what memory he had remaining and of which he was at length entirely bereft, only served him to take an incessant retrospect of the cause of his misfortunes, which were increased by the aggravating horrors of remorse. Um, that's a case study of a of a masturbator. <laughs> yes, exactly. The the poor and infirm uh, masturbator was a big problem <laughs> for for a long time, and uh, circumcision was one of the uh, foremost solutions to this problem. Uh, and 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 now, of course, it's very interesting. The medical literature is is produced by mostly American circumcised doctors who are interested in in trying to find support for this practice, and so you'll find all these studies suggesting that circumcision makes no difference to sexual sensation. And you look at the studies, and they're incredibly poorly designed. You can't prove a negative, of course, unless you have the capacity to do so. But you look at the instruments in the studies, and they have small sample sizes. They uh, have questionnaires that are so poorly worded that they couldn't detect a difference if there was one. 
And then you do have all sorts of studies that show that there are these adverse effects. But what happens is those are, who are committed to promoting circumcision will do these systematic reviews where they'll rate all the studies that show circumcision has negative sexual implications. They'll rate those studies as of low quality. And then they'll find these methodologically poor studies that don't seem to show a difference, and they'll rate those as very high quality. And then you get these systematic reviews that get cited uh, uh, impulsively by, by those who want to confirm that nothing negative could have, could have uh, uh, followed from the circumcision. And it's, the, the scientific literature on this is just rigged with these poorly done studies that are uh, uh, you know, superficially appealing if you want to, to feel like something negative didn't happen. Mm. So obviously that that kind of idea that it would prevent masturbation that fell out of um, the idea the whole idea of preventing masturbation fell out of favor by at least the sixties I guess and the new love period. So what happened after that? Why did they continue the practice? Well, it's it's interesting to try to figure out the I guess sociology and psychology of why uh, a practice like this would continue once the original uh, reasons had been. Uh, dismissed. So in the, in the free love period, preventing masturbation and dulling the sexual organ and so forth wasn't a, a very popular idea. And so you started to see that uh, while in the earlier medical textbooks and uh, journal articles, uh, the sort of anti-sexual uh, penis dulling effects would have been extolled as, as medically virtuous, suddenly those justifications dropped out of the literature because it wasn't uh, a cool idea anymore. And, and then you started to get concerns about uh, venereal disease and uh, sexually transmitted infections. So uh, the thought here was that uh, this, this actually goes back into the earlier period because in, uh, in sort of closed Jewish communities, there were lower rates of sexually transmitted infections in, in early New England. And so the thought was, well, it must be due to, to the fact that they're circumcised. Uh, rather than, you know, for example, different uh, social practices, which uh, ha are, have in general a much stronger explanation, um, explanatory power for, for predicting um, the rate of transmission of sexually transmitted infections. And so um, this was sort of an idea that was present in the culture as well. And you started to get claims in the medical literature that, well, it, it must be good for uh, reducing the risk of uh, these sorts of infections and, uh, and other diseases. And uh, in, in a way, the What's going on here is you have most of the, the men in the medical profession in the United States at that point were themselves circumcised. And if you, if you realize that something was done to you when you were an infant and you, you, couldn't, you couldn't say no, and now you've, you're, you're left with this sort of state of your genitals, it, there's a strong motivation to think that that must have been a good thing. It would be pretty distressing if it turned out that it wasn't. And so uh, there's an there's a inbuilt need to look around and try to find some justifiable reason for, for having had this done. And so you find that American doctors, again, the, the majority of the, the men of which uh, have themselves been circumcised in infancy, have this almost obsessional need to, to try to justify uh, circumcision. It's very interesting. I've, I've seen this. Also, I see this in religious communities where circumcision is common. Someone will raise the point, maybe in a, a social media forum, that uh, cutting off part of the genitals of a child seems sort of morally weird. And then the person will, will panic and they'll, they'll go on Google and they'll try to find, well, what's, I mean, there's gotta be something good about this. I heard there were health benefits and they'll pull up, oh good. I found some articles on PubMed and I, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics, they seem to say some nice things about this. And it kind of calms their, <laughs> their sense of concern because, well, if there's these secularly justifiable 
beneficial, healthy kind of outcomes. Well, that's the sort of thing that would make it make sense. And of course, it was good that this happened to me all along. And I think on a wider scale, that sort of general tendency may very well have played a factor in the uh, persistent raising of new things that circumcision is supposed to be good for uh, throughout American medical history. That is a, it is a very delicate issue, I feel, because um, if we talk about if we talk about it as genital mutilation, for example, um, then people get very touchy because they feel you are, for one thing, you're, uh, you might be demonizing them as, par- as parents yeah. for having had their children circumcised. So some of the more strident uh, rhetoric that I hear coming from the intactivist lobby um, with whom I am basically in, com- I'm, I'm in complete sympathy with them, but I find this unhelpful because there's a suggestion that as parents, you did this terrible thing to your child, whereas in fact, the parents were just uh, following the medical advice they were given. In most cases, I'm just leaving aside religious examples for the moment and focusing on the secular. They were just following the medical advice they were given and doing what they thought was the best thing for the child. So when you start using that highly emotive language, people get very defensive, especially if they've already had their son circumcised. Yeah, I, I, can, I completely agree. And, and in my own papers, I argue against the use of the term mutilation. In fact, I don't use it even in the case of female genital cutting, because you find the same sort of defensiveness there. Many women who have had even rather extreme forms of genital alteration for ritualistic purposes. In their cultures, it's again, it's so common. And their parents, they too think that they're doing what's best for the child. They think that they're uh, putting her through a ritual that will make her dignified and uh, more beautiful and accepted by her community. And so when some of these women migrate to Western countries and they, they find all this rhetoric that they've been mutilated, very often they had formerly felt okay with their bodies. In fact, they felt that they had been beautified. And now they feel that they've been diminished. And this sort of secondary harm uh, is inflicted, whereby they feel essentially humiliated about one of the most private parts of their bodies. And and the implication is that they're less than. And so I don't think it's helpful at all to take someone who's had part of their, their genitals altered or removed without their consent, who was raised in a culture where most people think that's a good thing to do, and then tell them, actually, you've been mutilated. On the other hand, I think when when men or women express that they feel mutilated, so you find there's a minority of people in genital cutting cultures who have sort of woken up to what happened and said, gee, I don't think that this is a good idea and I don't like that this happened to me. In the United States, for example, when, when men say, hey, I feel mutilated, they tend to get kind of trivialized or, or laughed away because I think we're very uncomfortable talking about men's pain in general. Um, and, and so there's kind of two sides. It's that if somebody, if somebody feels hurt by what happened, I think we should take them seriously and not dismiss their feelings. But if somebody feels okay with their body and, and they're more or less happy with what happened or they've come to terms with it or whatever, I think forcing this idea that they need to somehow walk around feeling mutilated is, is not helpful at all. The point you raise about parents making, making decisions for their, their children, as parents, you know, a lot of parents are doing their best to try to get a handle on what are the different things that you're supposed to do when you give birth to a child and they're reading all these books and Googling online and in parents groups and so forth. And, and all of them are trying to do their best. There really is no parent who thinks, well, I'm just going to mutilate my child this morning. That seems like a good thing to do. They think, well, I, I thought it was healthy. I don't know. The doctor seemed pretty in favor of it and it's normal in my culture. 
This is a this is another a very important point uh, in in some psychology work that I'm doing with colleagues. There's this emerging uh, body of evidence suggesting that deep inside our our moral psychology is this conflation between what's common and what's good. It's almost mm. that these things are represented in our mind in the same way, and we have to very effortfully tease them apart. So if something's common in our culture, even if it's horrible. Our, our default moral intuition is to think it must be good because otherwise, why would it be common? Mm, and mm. this normally works, right? If you're a little kid and you're growing up in a culture and you're trying to figure out what to do, you should do what's common. You should look around and see what everybody else is doing. And that's a very, very good heuristic. It's a good strategy when you're deciding what to do and we carry with it, uh, carry it with us into our adult life. The problem is that the one time that it doesn't work is when you have a widespread practice that's awful. Uh, but uh, because it's common, people aren't able to see that it's awful. And, uh, and, and this has happened throughout history. There's been all sorts of cultural practices that have been widespread and later seen to be uh, very morally problematic. Circumcision is one of those things. I think future generations are going to look back and say, that's just astonishing that, that in you know, uh, this century in the United States, in this sort of uh, you know, developed, civilized country, we were doing this, this thing to our infants. Um, but because it's common now, it's just very intuitively hard for many Americans to see it. And I think, I mean, it's very, it's a natural response to feel defensive, especially when people talk about um, reduction in sexual sensation. Then people who have been, men who have been circumcised, um, feel that you are sending the message that they are lesser, that they are less adequate lovers. Um, and I found this, you know, both talking, um, I'm not going to, I'm going to try to avoid, because this is what I did last time the topic came up, I talked about personal experiences and had to actually cut it later. <laughs> um, but um, I, I've had this experience also with boyfriends um, who have this extremely, um, a couple of boyfriends I've had who have had this extremely ambivalent uh, feeling about it. On the one hand, they want to sort of prove to themselves that there has been no there's no reduction in sensation. There's no difference. And on the other hand, they are concerned or a little even paranoid or worried or regretful. They feel that they're not really fully feeling the full range of, of sensations. And they think that that might be because of being circumcised. So I've experienced that a lot, this kind of dual attitude there's a sense of maybe something has been taken away here, but I don't want to believe that. Right. Um, the issue of sensitivity is very interesting. One thing I hear that's the, the go-to response is, well, gee, if I were any more sensitive, uh, that would be a problem because the, the thought is, you know, sensitivity is what might contribute to what some people characterize as premature ejaculation. Mm -hmm. And so there's this, this immediate response, well, it's good, you know, I'm glad that I was a little bit dulled because I wouldn't want to be more sensitive. And this is really to misunderstand what people mean by sensitive. It's not, uh, it's not that what a foreskin does is just dials up sensitivity even more. It's that it's a different kind of feeling. Um, it's, the foreskin is, is imbued with different nerve receptors that are very sensitive to fine touch. So this would be like if, you're, if you want to stroke the back of your hand with your finger, you'll notice that it's, it's, it's nice enough, but if you were to stroke the palm of your hand, you get a different, more tingling, subtle feeling. And that's because there are these Meisner's corpuscles, which are fine touch nerve receptors. And those are concentrated in, in the foreskin. And this has been shown in a couple of different 
studies now where the, the most sensitive to light touch tissue is, is removed by circumcision. And so what it is, is that the whole sensory platform changes. The, the subjective quality of the experience is different. The other thing, which, um, again, when I see these studies that come out saying, you know, circumcision makes no difference to sexual sensitivity, they're, they're always published in, in American journals by American authors and usually by circumcised men. Um, there, there's, a, there's a logical error here, which is they, they, they say if you remove the foreskin and then you, you test the sensitivity of the remaining part of the penis, so you test the glands of the penis in circumcised and non-circumcised men, in some studies, you don't find a difference. So the thought might be that, well, by uncovering the glands, you might make it less sensitive because it's rubbing against clothing over time. And that may be true. It depends on, on what study you look at. And there are some studies that suggest that is true. But what they, what they fail to realize is that when you remove the foreskin, you lose whatever sensitivity you would have experienced in the foreskin. And, and in the U.S., people don't know what a foreskin is because very few people have one. And so they, they say things like, well, it's a flap of skin, or they say it's a little extra skin. And whenever I hear this, I'm sort of astonished because it's like, oh, they literally don't know what a, what a foreskin is. They don't know what a circumcision removes. And, and what it removes is about a third or a half of the movable skin system of the penis. It's essentially denuding the penis of uh, quite a lot of tissue. I mean, in the adult, it would be enough tissue to cover a credit card easily. Um, and so, so it, it definitely changes the sensory profile of the penis. It definitely changes the mechanics of the penis. You don't have a interacting sheath of tissue that sort of glides back and forth during sex. You, you have a shaft that rams in and out. That's what's left. And so the, the entire mechanics of the sexual experience changes. Um, and, and anybody who sort of stutters, studies the anatomy seriously knows this. Anybody who has a foreskin knows this. Anybody who's been with people who you know, are circumcised or not knows this. But in the U.S., there's this desperate need to trivialize and minimize uh, what's happened because you're right. If, if, I mean, just how would you psychologically respond to the fact that something was done when you're at your absolute most helpless, when you, when you were, had just come into the world? And, of course, your parents love you. They didn't mean to hurt you. They probably didn't see what was happening. It happened in another room. And if they saw what was happening, they would probably not want it to happen. Uh, and, and then the thought is, well, see, somebody removed a lot of erogenous tissue from my body. You, you have to somehow come to terms with that. And the best way is to trivialize what happened and assume it wasn't a big deal. Mm, mm. I mean, I do feel, um, that although obviously there's a wide range among different individuals and there's also, you know, a great deal of sexual experience has to do with imagination and, um, and the brain is a is a miraculous compensator. Yeah. Um, so I don't mean to imply that this is a kind of um, absolute, but I'm very skeptical. I'm actually quite skeptical myself and my straw poll of friends, um, <laughs> including some of my gay male friends who have very extensive experience, shall we say. Um, sure. I'm. I'm rather skeptical of the idea that there is no reduced sensitivity in the glands, actually, um, let alone also the sensations that are created by having a foreskin. Um, so I'm, I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a little skeptical even of those experiments that suggest there's no um, difference in sensitivity there. Well, just the, the recent study that was published in the, uh, the Journal of Urology that got a lot of attention 
uh, it was, you know, covered in the New York Times and Vox and everywhere else. And it said, you know, circumcision makes no difference to, to sensitivity. And of course, they were just ignoring the sensitivity of the foreskin. The, that same study showed that the foreskin was the most sensitive uh, to, to light touch uh, mm. part of the penis. Mm. Um, but they, what they meant was there's no there's no difference in the sensitivity of the glands. But if you go look at the study, it's an underpowered study, which means that it didn't have enough participants to show a difference if there was one. So anytime you want to prove a negative, you have to have a sufficient sample size to be able to demonstrate that if there had been a difference, you would have been able to, to detect it. In this study, the authors are explicit. They say, well, as it turns out, we did a power calculation after the fact, and it turns out we didn't have enough, uh, we didn't have enough participants to show a difference if there was one. So, uh, you know, all, all these studies that purport to show no difference, it's, it's like you have to go look at the methods, and very often the methods are pretty sloppy. Um, and, and on the other hand, when, when people have experiences in, in their lives and their sexual uh, partners and so forth, for some of them, it's, it's pretty obvious. Um, now, again, it's important to do controlled studies because, as you say, the brain is a huge compensatory organ. People have vastly different individual experiences. Uh, people's, you know, the way that they're kind of wired up, their nerve endings are distributed differently and so forth. Everybody has different things going on. And so there's quite a lot of individual variation. Um, but uh, it, it doesn't change the fact that a person who, who realizes that some sensitive part of their penis was removed would, would have reason to resent that whether we have a specific study that we can, you know, hang our hat on as being definitive. It's, it's never going to be definitive for everyone, by the way, because what those studies do is look at averages. And nobody is an embodied statistical average. Everybody is just themselves. Their sexual experience is, is in some respects, unique. And so you can look for, for signal uh, in, in, in the noise and what's going to be shared across many different people. But that's not going to tell you what's, what was true in your case. Your case might have been... Uh, a different. So, so these things get messy pretty quickly. It really seems to me that the burden of proof is, is here is completely the wrong way around. Um, I mean, you're doing an, uh, an operation, an irreversible operation on um, a patient who can't consent, an infant. Who's healthy. Uh, yeah. So you need to, uh, you're doing an irreversible operation on a healthy infant um, the burden of proof should be on you to show that that without that operation, the infant could not survive or thrive um, to the age, up up to the age at which they would be consenting. Um, yeah, I think without right, this having right. been done to them, and that seems that's a difficult case to make. It's it's a very difficult case to make, and I think this is a, a great point. So. Um, some people have said, you know, Brian, you've you've published these ethical arguments arguing that this is this is a morally uh, questionable procedure, to say the least. And so, you know, when you're evaluating the scientific evidence, surely you've got a bias, just like you know the pro circumcision people have, because you're opposed to the practice. And my response is actually my ethical argument does not rise or fall on whatever the latest study is that comes out of a medical journal. Uh, my my moral principle is you should not perform genital surgery on a healthy child, period. Um, now, if you want to call it prophylaxis and you say, well, actually, you know, it just, it's like removing the tonsils or something like that, the burden of proof is definitely on you. You are definitely going to have to find an, an overwhelming abundance of evidence that this surgery is so beneficial that the same benefits can't be achieved in less invasive autonomy-respecting ways. Um, that it's sort of an emergency. You've got to do it right away. Um, and, and so you're going to have to, I mean, you're going to have to be clawing through the medical literature to try to find uh, sufficient evidence to override this 
this really basic medical ethics principle that applies to every other surgery. I mean, we don't actually remove tonsils routinely anymore. Mm -hmm. Why? Because Mm -hmm. people realize that it causes risk when you cut someone's body. And if you don't really need to do that, and especially if it's a sensitive part of the body, I mean, nobody cares much about their tonsils. They don't have psychosexual significance. So, you know, it's just the sheer medical risk in that case. But we still don't do it. Whereas in the U.S., they, they think, well, you know, I don't know. Uh, circumcision has these, these potential future statistical maybe benefits. And it's like, well, I don't know. Can those benefits be achieved in non-surgical ways? Okay, then why are you doing surgery as the first thing? Surgery should be the last resort, not the first resort for addressing potential future disease. And, and every other medical context in, in Europe and in Asia and South America, everywhere that doesn't do circumcision, they think it's insane that American doctors uh, start with surgery. In fact, they say, they say I have a, a colleague of mine in, in uh, the Netherlands who says, um, here in Europe, we think of, of surgery as, as the absolute last resort, and especially if the patient can't consent, and especially if we're dealing with a part of their body that's, that's very sensitive and personal, and especially if they're healthy. I mean, we would never dream of doing surgery in that case. And he says, what your American doctors do is they start with a surgery. They say, we have this surgery that we perform. I wonder if there are any health benefits that follow from this. And oh, thank God they can find some so that they can kind of justify themselves why they do it. But the sheer existence of some statistical health benefit, and of course, these studies are all all contested, but even granting the statistical findings, um, the sheer existence of some benefit is is never going to be enough to, to make your ethical case. You'd have to show that the benefits are overwhelming that they can't be achieved by other means, and that they are um, massively out, uh, outweighing the risks and the drawbacks. Um, and, you know, almost every medical society that's looked at this, apart from the American Academy of Pediatrics, uh, which that's a whole t- topic we could get into, is how they came to this conclusion, um, has, has said that just purely on medical grounds, the benefits uh, are, are so dubious and are not uh, stronger than the risks and the drawbacks. So you have a net harm. And you can't perform a net harmful surgery on a healthy patient who can't consent. It is totally contrary to medical ethics. Yeah. It is totally a violation of the doctor's code of ethics. Yeah. But because it's common in the United States, it's like this blind spot. They just don't see it. Yeah. First, first do no harm. And I mean, some of the advantages that are cited are not even relevant to childhood. So, for example, um, they always cite the study of African men who supposedly had a reduced risk of um, contracting HIV after being circumcised. Um, and I, I know that that study has been questioned, um, but it's also has been promoted by the WHO. So, but whether or not that is correct, whether or not the African men actually did have a reduction in risk, that implies that you could give people that information at the age of 18 and they could decide whether or not to go ahead with the surgery then. Right. So those, this is a very, very interesting and important point. So those studies were conducted on, on adult volunteers. So no person who's critical of circumcision thinks that adults should not be allowed to undergo genital surgery if that's what they want to do to try to reduce their risk of, of a disease in an area where there's a heterosexual epidemic of HIV transmission, which does not apply to the United States, Europe, or anywhere else, um, and certainly not the U.S. where they're pushing infant circumcision. So you cannot copy and paste the findings from a, a controlled clinical trial in sub-Saharan Africa of adult men and say, oh, these same things must affect you know, infants in the United States where the pattern of disease transmission is totally different. So most uh, HIV transmission in the United States happens among men who have sex with men and injecting drugs, drug users. There's the, your chance of getting heterosexually transmitted HIV in the U.S. is essentially zero. It's like really, really low. And the best way to 
to prevent that from happening anyway is to, you know, practice safe sex strategies, not to remove a part of your penis. But people are so desperate, so desperate to try to, to justify this thing that we already do that they're, they're reaching into to Africa and saying, I don't know, in this place where there's an epidemic of heterosexually transmitted HIV, maybe we can borrow some of those findings and, you know, patch them on to the practice that we do over here to infants. So I agree with you on the ethical point. Um, if this evidence is compelling and a person thinks that uh, they'd like to undertake this this form of uh, a prophylaxis. They can do that when they're sexually active. You don't do it to a child. But the second point is these studies are... Absolutely. I'm fine with any consenting adult um, deciding to be circumcised. I think that's absolutely their choice and decision. Well, you know, what people, what people will say on this, just to, to jump in on this bit, the, the, the counter argument is they'll say, well, but it's easier to do in infancy or it's, uh, it's less risky to do in infancy. And I, I think about this a lot. What an interesting argument this is, because, you know, some women undertake cosmetic genital surgery as adults. They might get a labiaplasty, let's say. Now, you might think that they're doing that on behalf of questionable norms or something like that. And you might try to persuade them that they don't need to do it. But anyway, it's their choice if they want to have their labia removed. You would never hear anybody say, well, I don't know, you know, why don't we just do it in infancy? Because it's, it's less risky then, and, you know, she won't remember it, and, uh, you know, um, that way it'll heal faster. All these arguments that are raised in favor of, of doing it, you know, right away on the boy are things that would be totally rejected if it were any other medically unnecessary surgery. But again, it's, it's we're looking for any possible argument to explain why we've already done something that all of our other moral reasoning would suggest we shouldn't do. Um, I think that a lot of the other kinds of arguments that they make in favor of male circumcision apply even more to women. But of course, we don't do these kind of prophylactic operations on women in the West, in the US. I say we, I'm, <laughs> I have nothing to do with the US, but in the West in general, specifically in the US. You know, for example, it's, you can get, you can become smelly. I'm a dancer. Right. I can tell you, I become really stinky several times a day. And there's a very easy solution, <laughs> which doesn't right. involve removing any part of my genitalia. You just go and, and wash. Yeah. And that seems like an argument which has no bearing, especially on a society where, where, where water is abundant. Yeah, if you have access to clean to clean water and soap, um, the the argument that you would preventatively remove tissue. I mean, you could remove your earlobes too, and then you wouldn't have to wash behind your ears. But again, it's in any other context, we would see this as a very silly argument for doing uh, a surgery on a child. Sure, of course, the ears don't become so pungent. I guess that's true. But you know, we don't excise people's armpit glands or anything. <laughs> you don't. Yeah, yeah. Um, people do become smelly if they. In the course of life, that's entropy. And then you can remove that by washing. Yeah. It's, and also, uh, you know, there's this claim that it will reduce urinary tract infections. Well, girls have a lot more urinary tract infections because we have an orifice here open to the outside world. Right. And urinary tract infections are so easily treatable. It's three days of antibiotics. Right. So after after the age of, of one, girls get UTIs about 10 times more frequently than boys do. And, and in the unlucky event that they get a urinary tract infection, it's treated conservatively. Again, nobody proposes surgery. But as you say, it's true. There, there are moist folds of tissue on the female genitalia. So if you want to start opening up this idea that there's all these health benefits and hygienic benefits to, to cutting off part of the genitals, 
what you're doing is, is, is opening an incentive for cultures that practice female genital cutting to try to look for health benefits. And they already do this. So in cultures that practice what they call female circumcision, they cite health benefits all the time. And they say stuff like, it's cleaner, it's less smelly, it's more beautiful, it's better, there's fewer folds of tissue for bacteria to get trapped in, and so forth. And again, this is seen as just abhorrent from the, the perspective of, of you know, Western medicine. But in any culture where you, where you have a, a, a ritually accepted surgery and, and we're in the modern era, you're going to have to come up with some kind of health-based argument for why it has to be done. Otherwise, you would realize that there wasn't, wasn't a good argument for it. The, I, I want to say one quick thing about the mm-hmm. HIV studies before we go off those, which is just that uh, the World Health Organization recommendations, and maybe we don't have time to get into the sociology of this, but when, when people hear World Health Organization, I don't know what they're imagining, but what that means is whoever was assigned to the task force to look at this issue, who very often are people who have had a deep interest in this topic for a long time and have links to the United States and have been pressing for a circumcision solution um, in their own careers. And so it's not like it's some dispassionate, godlike medical body somewhere in Switzerland that's making this decision by dispassionately looking at the, at the medical evidence. It's, it's, there's actually some sociological research on this by uh, Elaine Giammi and, and colleagues showing that the whole HIV uh, circumcision juggernaut was driven by a very small coterie of dedicated pro-circumcision uh, academics who have based their careers on uh, pushing this this argument forward and, and shutting out dissent and you know linking up with networks and getting their arguments through. So just because the WHO says something is totally not impressive to me because I've written a very lengthy critique of the WHO policy on on FGM or female genital cutting, and it's just ridiculously bad. It's like high school level scholarship with egregious errors in citation, in reasoning, and so forth. So. Um, on the specific point, though, of the HIV studies, there were four trials that were conducted, randomized control trials, and you only ever hear of three. You hear the ones that looked at female to male transmission of heterosexually transmitted HIV, which, again, is not the way that HIV is transmitted in the United States. And those showed, under clinical conditions, a relative risk uh, reduction of 60% and an absolute risk reduction of 1.3%. So that's the number you should care about because that's the absolute drop in, in uh, transmission. Was it one point? I thought it was 1.8. I just watched the circumcision movie, American Circumcision movie last. It time. depends on which on which trials you on which trials you combine and and how you uh, how you account for the dropout rate uh, of participants who were lost to follow up and so forth. So, but it's something about that. It's about 1.3, 1.8. It's less than two percent in in either case. Um, but the the fourth trial was a trial looking at male to female transmission. And uh, that trial had to be stopped early because the female partners of circumcised men were contracting HIV at a higher rate. Uh, and, of course, women in, in these African countries are, are at much greater risk of, of HIV than uh, men are. And so the one trial that looked at male to female transmission uh, was abandoned to futility and just sort of swept under the rug. Nobody wants to talk about it. But um, this is the kind of uh, thing that makes me think that there's this there's this need to find a reason why we're doing circumcision, and we'll do we'll we'll even dismiss trials and ignore them that showed an increased risk of uh, HIV transmission to women, uh, and then we just tout the benefits to men, uh, and and then try to extrapolate them into epidemiological environments and aid groups for which there's no evidence that that same effect even applies. So um, anyway, that's my rant about the WHO, and and uh, <laughs> we can. 
maybe come back to some of those issues in more detail at some other time. Of course. Um, Ali Rizvi gives a nice um, uh, comparison. He says, I, I think this was Ali who said this. Ali also says that being circumcised is like listening to classical music without the string section. It's a nice it's a nice kind of analogy because it points out that it's not just the volume. I think people think, oh, well, that's when they say, if, if I were any more sensitive, I'd, I'd you know, have a problem. I'm glad that I'm less sensitive. They're thinking of, of sensitivity as like a volume uh, mm. dial that's dialed up and they don't want to be even more sensitive. And that's not what anyone's talking about. The, it's, the, it's the delicate sensitivity that's lost. Uh, and something like, as yeah. you say, the, having the string section, yeah. Um, but Ali also says, and I think he's quite correct about this, penile cancer is cited as a reason for performing uh, prophylaxis against penile cancer, is cited as a reason for, for performing circumcisions. Now, penile cancer, I understand, is fairly rare. Breast cancer is extremely common, and some people even uh, have inherited a gene, the BRCA1 and 2 genes, I think. Right which makes them much more susceptible. And some people come from, have a family history of breast cancer. And we do not do prophylactic removal of, um, we don't do prophylactic removal of breast tissue. Consenting adults may decide to do that. Yes, famously Angelina Jolie, but we don't right. do that to infants. Well, the, the thing about penile cancer is you're about as likely to be struck by lightning uh, as you are to get penile cancer in the United States. And anyway, you're not just randomly at risk for penile cancer. Penile cancer you mostly see among, uh, for example, uh, men who are experiencing homelessness and can't wash ever and have extreme hygiene problems and uh, have uh, you know uh, other conditions that could be treated less uh, more conservatively than with, with surgery. So it's not like you're just walking around and you might get penile cancer. So anybody who practices normal hygiene um, is is vanishingly uh, unlikely to get penile cancer. So again, it's it's but it sounds scary, right? So you see this laundry list of things. It's, well, it reduces the risk of penile cancer, and people think, oh my god, I don't want to get penile cancer. And it's like, don't worry, you're not going to get penile cancer anyway, uh, unless you you don't wash your penis for for years. Um, right. And so th this is the this is the sort of thing. Yeah. And again, it's not relevant to children. I mean, this is overwhelmingly a disease of older people. That's right. And yeah. and quite a rare one. Yeah, ab absolutely. I, f I feel that it's really odd that people who are opposed to this are the ones who are having to justify, uh, do the justifications. I think uh, I wanted to go back to the point about the terminology and the mutilation terminology, because uh, some something that was also pointed out to me by an intersex activist who I encountered on Twitter and had a little Twitter conversation with, and she said that she doesn't like to talk about mutilation because in many cases, the same surgeries are surgeries that intersex people opt for in adulthood. Mm -hmm. So as an intersex person, you may choose to have vaginoplasty or you may choose to have the clitoris reduced in size or whatever it might be if you want your yep. genitals to fit in appearance closer to the sex that you feel you are. So intersex people usually have a strong gender identity mm -hmm. as male or female. But the, pro the problem is performing these surgeries on non-consenting infants. Oh, I, I just completely agree with this point. If, if the sheer changing of, of a part of your body through surgery is not uh, 
in and of itself mutilative if, if you want the change. If you seek out the change, presumably you're doing it because you think it's an improvement in some way. So this is why right. I, the, the whole uh, World Health Organization definition of all female genital cutting that's not medically necessary as mutilation, it's this term that they, they apply to, to a whole range of different procedures, some of which are done to, uh, in, under conditions of consent. And in those cases, if you want the change to your body, that's okay. And we shouldn't say that you're, you're mutilating yourself. But if you do it to somebody who can't consent, the moral problem is not that it's mutilative, it's that it was done without consent. That was the problem, not that it was somehow inherently mutilation, whatever that might mean. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is something that comes up with trans people too, that um, a lot of people talk about trans people mutilating their bodies. Well, it's it's their bodies. You know, if they if you want to change, have gender reassignment surgery as a consenting adult, right? Um, I can't I can't see the problem with that. Yeah, we have to decide what we mean by mutilation. Mutilation. I'm working on a paper about this right now, which is going to be about essentially how we should define mutilation. And I'm going to build in the the, the notion of consent and resentment into it. So I'm going to say you you might be able to uh, uh, call something mutilative if the person regards it as a harm to their body and they didn't want it and they didn't consent to it. Then they have every right to to consider themselves mutilated. On the other hand, if somebody asks for uh, a surgical alteration and they consider it to be an improvement or something that brings their body in alignment to their ideals or their gender identity or whatever it is, then to somehow by fiat to just decide it's mutilation because it's a change to the tissue is uh, is an unsupportable argument. So I have I have quite a lot of questions for you sure. um, from people on Twitter. I thought nobody would be much interested in this topic, but I was quite wrong. <laughs> right. um, I'm still sticking mostly to male circumcision sure. um, and not getting into female genital mutilation because I think there is actually enough to talk about here. But one thing where I do strongly agree with you is that I used to feel, I mean, I've always felt that I've always been opposed to circumcision because I think it is in contravention of the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. But I generally found that when I talked about female genital mutilation, I always got people in my mentions saying, but what about circumcision? Mm -hmm. And I I used to have a knee-jerk response, very similar to Michael Shermer's, uh, who you cited in one of your articles, a knee-jerk response of annoyance of that is far less extreme and this is whataboutery and you shouldn't be bringing this up right now. Mm -hmm. And I have completely changed my mind on that. I feel that the best way to oppose female genital mutilation also to have uh, autonomy for intersex people, many of whom are still subjected to operations in, in infancy. Yes, yes. Uh, is to just be consistent, is just to be absolutely consistent about this. That's that's what I've been arguing in, in papers over the years. And I think that part of why the knee-jerk response happens is because when people think of female genital cutting or mutilation, they have a stereotype in their mind that's based out of these extreme procedures done in Northeast Africa with rusty razor blades. And the reason why they have that image in their mind is because the Western media focuses on the most extreme and horrifying cases because it, it sells more newspapers. What they don't realize is that what the World Health Organization calls female genital mutilation refers to a dozen or more different procedures done by different groups for different reasons in different settings. And many of these groups do the procedures in hospitals, just like we do in the United States. 
Many of these procedures are far less invasive than male circumcision. So if you look at female circumcision as, as it's done in Malaysia, it's sort of a, a nick to the clitoral hood and there's no actual change to the genitals at all. Um, but this is considered mutilation by the World Health Organization. Um, also, you know, medically unnecessary labiaplasty is also mutilation, according to the, the World Health Organization. And then when people think of male circumcision, they think of some benign thing done in a hospital in the United States. Now, it's not actually benign. If you watch a video of a circumcision, you'll see it's a pretty extreme procedure, but it's thought to be benign because it's done by doctors, whereas they are totally ignorant of the fact that every community that practices female genital cutting in Africa also practices male genital cutting. And the thing that they do to the boys is often far more deadly than what they do to the girls and uh, mutilative. And you have penile amputations and infections and necrosis and all sorts of horrible stuff. But amazingly, nobody knows this. People think that they, they call it a form of gender-based violence, like girls are singled out to go through this horrible ritual where they have to be mutilated to, to be considered adults and to be considered marriageable. What they don't realize is that the boys also are going through the same ritual, and they also have to be genitally cut in order to consider uh, be considered as adults and to be considered marriageable and so forth. And there are you know more societies that practice genital cutting only of boys, and there are no societies that practice genital cutting only of girls. And so this idea that it's gender-based violence is so part of the the rhetoric of this, and it's based on complete anthropological ignorance. Like people literally don't understand uh, the facts on the ground because we have this Western narrative that was put in place from scholarship that's 30 years old, and it's just stuck in the popular consciousness. I think, I mean, I think it can be gender-based violence, but as you say, there are many, there are many different um, configurations and one thing that I've noticed recently is on Facebook and Twitter, I don't know whether they've now taken these ads down, but the Dawoodi Bora community in India have been advertising yeah. their female gentle cutting practices, which they remove, I think, part of the clitoral hood. I think actually not the whole, not the entire, um, but I'm not sure. I haven't looked it's a, it's a secretive practice, so we're not entirely sure. But according to a, a survey done within the community, the majority of cases where the women were aware of what happened to them, they said part of the clitoral hood was, was removed or an incision was made into the clitoral hood with no tissue removed. Um, but that's the, the uh, understanding from within the community as far as activists who are trying to end the practice um, have been right. able to, to discern. That's the, the typical form of cutting among the Dewudiborum. And their, their advertising says, look, there's nothing wrong with this practice because we also do male circumcision and it's exactly analogous. If there's nothing wrong with male circumcision, then there's nothing wrong with this either. They're, they're making an a fortiori case. They're saying if male circumcision is acceptable, then clearly this less invasive thing we do to girls for the same reasons and on the basis of the same religious convictions is acceptable. And they cite, in support of this view, the American Academy of Pediatrics policy on male circumcision, which says... Yeah, the health, I mean, even the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is the most pro-circumcision of any medical body, says that the benefits are not sufficient to uh, recommend the practice. They say, well, maybe they outweigh the risks, but ultimately it's going to come down to culture or religion. So they're just trying to create room for people who want to do it for traditional cultural or religious reasons to be able to cite some health benefits in support of their practice. But then, but they say, you know, um, you know, if you want to do it for religious reasons or cultural reasons, we should we should leave room for, leave room for parents to make that decision. So what the Dawoodi Bora are saying, literally copying and pasting the text from the AAP, they're saying, well, sure, we want to do this for religious and cultural reasons as well. It's less invasive than male circumcision, and so we should be allowed to do it. And uh, and and this is why, as you suggested, and as I completely agree, the 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 
coherent and consistent way to object to all these practices is not on some imagined threshold of harmfulness uh, where you can say, well, this is a little bit more harmful than that, or that's less harmful. Or if you cut this tissue, it's going to have, you know, this risk profile. But if you cut that tissue, it's going to be that risk profile. Instead, you can just say it's, it's non-consensual and it's done to a healthy child who has reason to resent it when they grow up. And it can be traumatic quite apart from the, the risk profile. I mean, being held down and having your genitals exposed when you don't know what's going on and you're a little kid and a knife is being brought to the most sensitive part of your body and there is the risk that it could slip and cut off more than you intended and so forth. It's a total non-starter to try to parse what exactly the degree of harm is that's involved and suggest that that's mm. the thing on which the medical ethical analysis should turn. Instead, it it's, can be resolved in one fell swoop by saying it's not medically necessary. It's the most private part of the person's body you're introducing uh, risk of harm, and they can't consent. So you shouldn't do it regardless of whether they're a girl or a boy or an intersex child. Yeah, I agree. I mean, certainly with a with a Bora also, I've seen there's a um, there's a campaign within the Bora community, and it's a lot of videos of people talking about their women talking about their experience. Right. And they do it to children at about age seven, eight, mm-hmm. and it's extremely traumatic to be you go up to your bedroom and you're lured up there with a press with a promise of kind of sweets or presents or whatever yeah. and then all your aunts and your mothers are standing around and they hold your legs apart and take this knife to your um clitoris it's extraordinary it's an extraordinarily traumatic thing to put your child through yes um and ironically the bora are one of the most are one of the more liberal muslim communities yes and Bora women are one of the more emancipated groups of women among Muslim women. Yes, very highly educated, uh, many doctors, and uh, uh, yes, it's a, it's a as as far as uh, liberal Muslim communities go, the Dawoodi Bora are considered exceptional by many who um, who study this group. Uh, so I wanted to ask, and I think somebody put this question somewhere, but I'm just going to paraphrase it now. Um, have you come across um, men who actually remember the circumcision experience? Do you think that there is the possibility that that experience might be laid down in some way in conscious or subconscious memory as a trauma? Sure. I assume you're thinking of infant circumcision because in, yes, in, the, Muslim, I am, I think. Right, in the Muslim world, circumcision is done at age five or six or seven. And so it's definitely a highly traumatic uh, experience where the boy is, is physically held down in just the way you described among the Bora. Um, and similarly, all throughout Africa, it's done as a rite of passage uh, in puberty. So yes, again, it's extremely, yes. extremely traumatic. Uh, and you're not allowed to express that you experience any pain. You have to prove that you're a man by standing stoically while unanesthetized as somebody cuts off your foreskin. So those yes, are... Those are I've, I've, yeah. I've seen that vi- those videos, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> unfortunately, I can never unsee that. I mean, they just yeah. basically took a huge knife and cut slices. It looked like almost at random. Yeah, it was it's, like peeling a banana. It's, it's uh, yeah, it's it's and it's meant to be painful. That's the point. Is it's you're meant to show that you're a man because you can withstand just utterly excruciating pain without crying out in any way. So yes, those those things are are certainly dramatic. Um, that's this now. This is why in Jewish groups they often say, well, that's why it has to be done in infancy. You know, we figured it out. We've got to do it before it's traumatic because they won't remember. And this is an interesting point, and the same thing is raised in the U.S. generally about why it should be done in infancy. So the first point is, if, if, uh, if you're trying to understand what is happening 
inside the head of an infant, it's really hard to study because they don't have words. They can't tell you what's going on. Uh, they cry. And uh, when we do studies of looking at cortisol levels and what's happening uh, to the nervous system, uh, there's evidence from Maria Fitzgerald's group who studies infant pain that if anything, infants experience pain more acutely than adults because the way that their uh, the nerve endings have sort of um, are developing, they haven't yet reached their final configuration. And so they're sort of uh, more raw and exposed and receptive to uh, pain experiences in a more acute way, and there's more false alarms and so forth. So uh, if anything, the experience of an infant is is uh, more sensitive to pain than would be the case in an adult. And then the question is, what constitutes memory for an infant? They're not forming conscious memories in, in the form that they can report later on, usually until they're about three or four. Uh, uh, and so in infancy, you're not as as far as anybody's aware, uh, uh, usually recording conscious memories. But you have all sorts of unconscious stuff going on. Your nervous system remembers these early painful experiences. And there is some research suggesting that uh, the, the sort of uh, way that your uh, sensitivity and pain thresholds are set for months or years later uh, can be affected by even one adverse experience uh, in, in early infancy. And so it's harder to study. But uh, as far as we're able to discern with the tools that are available to us, there are probably um, unconscious effects and, uh, uh, in terms of memory and, and, and how that trauma is processed later in life is, is incredibly hard to study. I want to ask you a little bit, what do you think are the most effective ways for going forward with this issue in the, in the U.S.? I mean, I'm very surprised that there hasn't been a class action lawsuit I'm actually quite surprised that um, there hasn't been, you know, groups of Jewish or Muslim men haven't done a class action lawsuit at the European Court of Human Rights because it seems like a very clear uh, human rights violation. Is there a reason why there there has not been a class action lawsuit on this? Well, in the United States, uh, men who are very upset about having been circumcised, what happens is that they tend to be um, outside the statute of limitations, and so they can't raise a lawsuit, that too much time has passed. By the time they become aware of the fact that something was done that maybe they don't like, uh, then there's no recourse that they can take legally at that point. There was one case of somebody who was very upset about having been circumcised, and it turned out that the doctor hadn't properly got consent from the mother. And so there was grounds for raising a lawsuit, and he won a whole bunch of money for uh, a wrongful surgery because it was considered that the parental consent was not valid. But what most American courts will say is as long as the parents consent, there's no, there's no possible wrong. I mean, what could you object to? The consent was obtained. But the point is the consent wasn't obviously obtained from the person whose body it is and who has to live with the surgery for the rest of their lives. But legally in the United States, the way it's, it tends to be treated is as long as there's valid parental consent, then there's no grounds for any kind of lawsuit. Um, in terms of a... a European international human rights type lawsuit. It's hard to say. I don't. I don't know uh, whether there may be such a lawsuit raised or why there hasn't been one. I think there's a there's a wonderful book by uh, Charlie Carpenter, who's a sociologist who studies human rights, and it's called Lost Causes. And she has a whole chapter on the issue of circumcision as a human rights issue. And her argument is that the way that human rights gets conceptualized and plays out in policy and legal decisions. Is, is heavily influenced by who the actors are and what they consider to be something of concern. And a lot of the human rights discourse and policy and law 
is heavily influenced by the United States. And in the United States, male circumcision is a common cultural practice. And so it's not seen as a harm. Um, so a lot of the gatekeepers in the human rights community come from families or cultural backgrounds or religious groups where male circumcision is common and female genital cutting is not and is seen as abhorrent. And so they're happy to focus their attention on the issue of female genital cutting of any kind. And again, male circumcision is just invisible to them. It's not seen as something that's bad because it's common. I always, uh, you know, I've heard many responses on this topic with people just um, telling guys to kind of man up and not be so pathetic and get a life and things. It's odd that we are so um, cavalier about this. So I talked in an earlier podcast with Bradley Manning and Bradley Campbell and Jason Manning about victimhood culture. Right. Um, and their theory is that we have moved from initially uh, what was predominantly an honor culture you know, in which if you were slighted, you fought the guy to mm -hmm. a dignity culture uh, where you where you show that you are you are above that. You don't respond. You don't allow your sense of self to be affected by other people's insults to what they call a victimhood culture in which there's a kind of a kind of currency of victimhood. And there's so much discourse about white privilege, thin privilege, straight privilege, cis privilege, whatever privilege it might be, within U.S. culture, within kind of the excesses of the social justice, left, woke culture, etc. Um, but thinking about victimization has become very mainstream. And yet this is one area in which we're so completely dismissive of what is very obviously, um, it may not it may have greater or lesser effects, but it's very obviously a wrong that has been done to people. And I'm quite surprised by that contrast. And I wondered if you wanted to say something about that. Sure. I, I think a feminist analysis is very helpful here because one critique that feminists have made for a long time about the way that gen gender is construed in patriarchal societies is that uh, boys and men are considered to be strong and, and tough and invincible and girls are characterizes these fragile, uh, weak people who need to be protected. And much of the efforts of the last 20, 30 years of feminist activism has been trying to contest these gender norms and, and stereotypes. And yet in a weird way, when uh, a, a man says, I feel really hurt, I feel injured, I feel sexually uh, damaged in some way, the, the response is to, is to say, well, you should man up or, or to dismiss his pain. And in a way, that's, that's very counterproductive if we're trying to uh, change these restrictive gender norms. And uh, I think that, you know, there's this tension then within feminism, because on the one hand, feminists are very concerned to say, we want to be focusing on women's issues, and women get the short end of the stick. And so, you know, when uh, when we're talking about gender concerns, we need to be focused on the, the pains and, and difficulties that women and girls face. And so then when men say, well, actually, I feel hurt, then you get sort of the thing that you mentioned earlier, where it feels like what about ism and why are we detracting and diverting onto men's issues and so forth. But I think that there's a, a deeper feminist insight here, which is that um, if we can create room in the culture for men to express vulnerability and especially when they have good reason to, in this case, that's going to be a step forward in 
you know, blowing up these really restrictive stereotypes about uh, men being tough and strong and girls being vulnerable and weak. And so I think that there, there's a wonderful article by my colleagues called Foreskin is a Feminist Issue. And this is exactly the argument they make, mm. uh, where they say, um, this is an area where men have a, a very good reason to feel aggrieved. And if they're expressing vulnerability and pain and difficulty, and they want some redress, rather than trivializing their feelings, which is just reinforcing the man up culture, uh, we should create room in the discourse for their, for their feelings and acknowledge that this is something where it's quite rational to feel upset. Well, it seems to me to be very counterproductive to take an attitude of competitive victimhood. And I mean, I feel that in general, that that is a danger always in the social justice left, that on the one hand, we should be acknowledging people's actual victimhood. But on the other hand, there is this tendency to kind of vie for who is the most victimized, right. which is, which is, you know, what um, Bradley and Jason were talking about. Um, and we seem to have an example of that here, a very clear example it's you don't get to complain because other people are more victimized. You know, we're more victimized than you. That doesn't seem like a very mature attitude to take. I think that for those who are concerned about uh, focusing on female genital cutting, for example, there's often this feeling that if we start talking about male genital cutting, it will detract attention away from uh, the concerns and all the progress that's been made in getting global support for eradicating female genital cutting, mm. and mm. and I and and you know there also is is a, a very straightforward issue of resource distribution. So right now there's lots of funding to try to figure out how to eliminate female genital cutting, and the same organizations are are the World Health Organization, the United Nations, and so forth are putting funding into looking for the benefits of male genital cutting. And so if you were to say, well, actually, maybe we should shift some of this funding over to look at what are the harms of male genital cutting, you're going to have a problem of how do you divide up the pie. And so one unfortunate strategy that's, that's played out among female genital cutting uh, activists who are trying to eliminate the practice is that it's been very important for them to say, this is very different from male circumcision and it's much worse. And anybody who brings up male circumcision is trivializing female genital cutting and they have to be dismissed. The problem is that the discourse is now changing very quickly because people are becoming aware of the fact that both male and female genital cutting are practiced in the same cultures, that the degree of harm overlaps in many cases, that the symbolic meanings overlap in many cases, and that in the long run, the consistent strategy is going to have to be to make it about consent, not about sex or gender. And so there's this, this haggling that's happening now in the sort of uh, world of activism to try to figure out what's a strategy that can go forward that's going to allow us to protect girls, given that the United States, which is one of the most powerful players in all of these policies, is unwilling to examine its own cultural practice of male genital cutting. And if we cause the U.S. to examine its own practice of, of uh, genital cutting, then we might find that some of these arguments that, well, maybe minor female genital cutting isn't so bad, which is what is now coming into the literature, that people are going to be resistant to um, trying to get rid of all forms of female genital cutting. And so there's this very uncomfortable debate that's happening right now. Mm, and mm. Uh, it's unclear how it's going to, how it's going to, to play out, but uh, that's part of the tension that's involved. It's, it seems to me that a better strategy is to just be completely consistent about your ethical position on this, which is, as, as you say, it's a matter of not, performing unnecessary, non-medically necessary and urgent surgeries on patients who can't consent. 
But who's going to make that? Who's going to make that argument? What's, what is that? You know, the American medical profession is is consists consists of a lot of circumcised men who are very invested in perpetuating the practice on the next generation, and uh, others others who are you know for religious and cultural reasons invested in the practice. So if you're going to come up with a global policy that says, hey, the important thing here is that you shouldn't be cutting children's genitals without their consent. You cannot get buy-in from the United States because right, right. the organizations say, "Oh, well, then that means that you know Jewish male circumcision is not allowable, and that's obviously in, an intolerable view." And so you can, you literally cannot make that argument, even though, of course, it's the consistent ethical argument. How do you answer people who say that that a ban on male circumcision would be anti-Semitic, which is an argument that I'm I'm hearing from a lot of people that it's absolutely crucial to Jewish identity and therefore. Condemning it is to be condemning Jews. I, I had one very hysterical guy on Twitter telling me that if male circumcision were ever banned, it would be like a second Holocaust. Right. I mean, I don't think most people's opinions are that extreme. And I know there are some reformed rabbis who are proposing alternatives. So a kind a, a separate practice, I forget what they call it, um, Instead of the bris, which is a welcome of the baby into the world, but without the, the actual circumcision. And I know there is some midrash, some early midrash, medieval Jewish midrash uh, against circumcision. Uh, so there are some Jewish, early Jewish scholars who felt the practice should be discontinued. So I think that there might be within Judaism some leeway here, but not being, I'm not Jewish and I'm not an expert, and I wondered what your feelings were about that objection. How you answer that objection? Sure. Uh, the the justifiable sensitivity here is that those who have had anti-Semitic desires to uh, eliminate and repress Jewish existence have, in the past, used bans on circumcision as their tool, oh. and therefore, when uh, when Jews think of um, banning circumcision, their minds go immediately back to this cultural and historical trauma, and it, it feels like it must be motivated by anti-Semitism. Uh, the difficulty here is that within Judaism, as you say, there has been debates about circumcision going back all the way to the beginning. I mean, uh, the Hanukkah story is about a civil war between Hellenizing Jews who had who stopped practicing circumcision and the fundamentalist Jews who wanted to continue the practice and said it must be done. And that was a war that played out. And at the end of it, the, the fundamentalist Jews went and forcibly circumcised all the, all the Hellenizing Jews uh, to insist that this was the mark of identity. <laughs> and so uh, it's kind of a, a, a sad story. Um, and I think most people don't know that, that aspect of the Hanukkah story, but that's sort of what that's about. And uh, similarly, in Germany in the 1800s, there was a big debate between, again, uh, those Jews who wanted to assimilate and become secular. And they said, listen, we really don't need to do this particular practice. Let's give it up. And again, the more conservative elements said, no, we have to continue. And also in the Hellenistic period, there was a, a innovation made to circumcision within Judaism, which is that it used to just be cutting off of the tip of the foreskin that extended over the end of the penis. And the problem was that Jewish athletes at the time who were trying to exercise in the nude with their Greek counterparts felt embarrassed that their glands was exposed because that was supposed to be a sign of sexual arousal and that was considered impolite. And so what they would do is they would stretch out the remaining foreskin tissue and tie it off so that they could kind of 
restore their foreskin a bit and and fit into the the uh, surrounding norms. And again, the conservative elements within Judaism didn't like this because it looked like a sign of assimilation. And so they mandated what's called Brit Pariah, which is the current form that's done, which is where they remove a third or a half of the penile skin system. They just remove the entire foreskin so that there's mm-hmm. nothing left that you could possibly restore. And that's the form that got picked up in the United States. And that's why in the United States, they have a very extreme form of circumcision as well. So this debate has been playing out within Judaism for a long time. What happens is anytime there's a criticism raised, the groups that stand up to speak on behalf of uh, Jewish culture tend to be uh, conservatives, and they tend to speak as though they're speaking for everyone. Meanwhile, the very uh, large movement within Israel and the United States of Jews who are opposed to circumcision do not get airtime. And uh, they don't get to say, actually, we, we would like to not be doing this practice, or here's an alternative ritual that doesn't involve cutting and so forth. And so there's, there's intra-Jewish politics going on about this particular issue. On, on, on whether there should be a ban, this is very interesting. So I don't advocate for a ban because I don't think that legal maneuvers are the best way to change social practices. Mm. And certainly they often have very negative externalities. It's a very clumsy way of doing things. And you definitely should not try to pass legislation until you've got cultural buy-in and you've changed people's hearts and minds. Otherwise, people are going to be caught flat-footed and go, what the hell is happening? And this is anti-Semitic and you know, Jewish life is impossible and so forth. So I don't think that there should be a ban. But there's a, a difficulty here, which is that in most Western legal regimes, there's a very clear definition of what constitutes uh, physical assault, bodily assault. And it just is to cut a person without their consent and no medical indication. And so this came to a head in Germany back in 2012 because a Muslim child, uh, a four-year-old Muslim boy, had been circumcised and there was some medical complication. He was bleeding excessively. And the, doc- uh, the parents sued the doctor and it went to a regional court in Cologne. And the judge said, listen, I don't know what to say here, but a circumcision that's not medically indicated on a child just is an assault under German law. And I don't know how else to interpret this. And by the way, you can't revise German law because it was forced, forced on Germany after the Holocaust. And the big irony here is that the whole notion of a right to bodily integrity was in part a response to things like Mengele experimenting on Jewish children and cutting their bodies without their consent. And so this whole notion of human rights that was baked into German law uh, was a response to those sorts of things. And now a judge is confronted with interpreting Jewish law or, or German law and says, um, a circumcision just is an assault under our law. And the problem is that's politically impossible to say in Germany. And so the German legislature passed an emergency law, which said, uh, circumcision's legal. They didn't really figure out how to get the language right because it's still in conflict with the basic law. But this is the tension that's going to exist. It's politically impossible to ban circumcision, certainly in Germany and also in the United States. Um, But on some interpretations of the law, you don't, as it were, need a ban because it is already illegal. It already is a form of assault. Um, And so the way this played out recently, you mentioned the Dawoodi Bora earlier. This is is the cutting edge of the debate here. So I'll I'll put this on the table. in uh, last year, the United States had its first case testing its 1996 anti-FGM law, and this concerned the Dawoodi Bora, where the federal government uh, uh, took this group to court because they performed this uh, ritual nick of their, of their daughters. And uh, the judge was faced with this very difficult situation. Bernard Friedman was the judge, a federal judge in Detroit, and he he realized that the federal law says that any medically unnecessary cutting of girls' genitalia is a federal crime. 
including this form that was before him that is demonstrably less invasive than male circumcision, which the same group also practices within their families. And so what was he going to do here? If he says that the law is valid and this group has performed a form of mutilation, well, then male circumcision is right next in line because it's actually more invasive than what this group does. And this group does this both practices on religious grounds. So he couldn't do that. Uh, nor could he say, well, they're not guilty of uh, genital mutilation because it's pretty clear what the definition is in the law and it's any medically unnecessary cutting. So what he did is he ruled that the law is unconstitutional. He said uh, the law can't stand. And he did it on a very interesting grounds. He basically said um, this law is uh, beyond the, the authority of Congress to legislate because it concerns a criminal act um, that should be legislated at the at the state level. And so very interestingly, in avoiding one problem by saying, okay, the law is invalid, it's unconstitutional, I don't have to face the gender equality issue here, he admitted that even ritual nicking is a physical assault under uh, U.S. law. So he said this, this practice is already illegal in all 50 states as a form of physical assault. Well, you, now you've just kicked the can down to the state level because if ritual nicking is a physical assault, which doesn't remove tissue... Uh, the male circumcision, which removes a half of the skin system of the penis, is definitely physical assault under those same laws. And some states are aware of this. And so they've actually passed these little exceptions where they have a physical assault law or a child abuse law. And then they, they add an asterisk and they say, oh, and this doesn't apply to male circumcision. Why? Because otherwise it would be completely consistent with the definition of assault under the law. So to summarize all of that, I absolutely do not think people should propose a ban. I mean, that's just so inflammatory. It's It does bring up all these uh, historical cultural traumas in 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 Jewish uh, culture, uh, and and a sense of identity being threatened and so forth. But at some point, Western law is going to have to confront this tension, which is that uh, uh, on current definitions of what assault is, this religious practice is an assault, and I, whether that should uh, uh, be ignored or or swept under the rug or or confronted in some way, it's it's going to have to uh, be dealt with. Somebody asked specifically on Twitter, how do people of Jewish heritage, um, I, she means herself, I think, convince others that this is an outdated and inhumane practice? Well, there is a community of Jewish activists who are opposed to circumcision, and um, there's resources on the web. So there's a website called Beyond the Bris. There's groups that practice a Brit Shalom, which is the practice you were referring to earlier, which is covenant without cutting. So you cut a pomegranate or something like that rather than the, the boy's genitals. And it's a, a gender neutral or sex equal right because the same naming ceremony can be done for girls um, similarly without any cutting. Uh, so what, one, one move that uh, sort of secular Jews will make is they'll point out that uh, if you're concerned about sexism and patriarchy, uh, there's a problem within the symbolic meaning of circumcision within Judaism, which is that only the boys are allowed to be a part of the divine covenant. And Shia Cohen, who's a, a scholar of uh, Jewish philosophy at Harvard, has argued in a very interesting article uh, called Why Aren't Jewish Women Circumcised? His argument was that, well, Jewish women were considered other and lesser throughout much of Jewish history. They were, they were Jewish uh, by birth, but their Jewishness was in some sense inferior to the Jewishness of the boys because they were initiated into this covenant uh, that's supposed to be this central right within Judaism. And so he said, you know, people who are concerned with 
the uh, symbolic significance of circumcision should either introduce a cutting ritual for girls where they get circumcised, which, by the way, is exactly what the Dawoodi Bora do. They think that Muhammad's innovation was to make circumcision a gender equal right. So they say, listen, you know, we want to include girls in our important religious rituals. So they get circumcised just like the boys do. Uh, and within Judaism, it's not the case. Only the boys are circumcised. So you can either stop circumcising the boys and have a gender neutral right, or you can start circumcising the girls by pricking their clitoral hood or something like that. But either way, um, you could you could argue against it as a sort of secular liberal Jew on grounds of gender equality, which is a, a, a cherished value in, in most secular Jewish communities. Mm, thank you. I'm so glad. I mean, this is slightly irrelevant, but I'm I went through a quite dramatic uh, initiation ceremony into my religion, uh, mm. and I am so happy that it didn't involve any <laughs> any actual bodily modification of any kind. Right. Um, um. So I uh, I'm I'm talking about the Naujot, the Zoroastrian ceremony. We don't practice uh, bodily modifications uh, in Zoroastrianism. Um, I think also I, I wanted to just return to the feminist um, view of this for a moment. And I do feel I can't offer evidence for this because it will become too personal. And sure. I don't want to be kind of pornographic on this podcast. Um, maybe I should do an additional one for patrons only where I'm more explicit. Sure, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm not going to give that away for free. But I, you know, I do feel that um, while obviously you can have very enjoyable sex with someone who has been circumcised and you don't, you know, I don't have a relationship with a foreskin. I have a relationship with a person um, right. and it absolutely depends on the individual. And um, I do not consider it to be in any sense a deal breaker. I do think that that um, there are more sexual possibilities um, with uh, men in their natural state, and that that is in itself a feminist issue because um, because many women also have difficulties orgasming through just just through penetration or through mm -hmm. kind of just sort of hard thrusting or something. Um, the more kind of subtlety, the the more subtle the possibilities are for male arousal and male pleasure the more likely it is that a larger number of women will also get a lot of pleasure from the sex. So I feel that, I mean, I feel that these two issues can't be separated anyway, men's pleasure and women's pleasure, because men and women um, very often have sex with each other. Right. So what affects your partner's sexual response affects your sexual experience. There are some very interesting points here. So the first is that the male and female genitalia co-evolved over millions of years to function together in an uncut state. And uh, part of what happens when you remove the most fine-touch sensitive tissue on the, the male's genitals is that more vigorous thrusting is needed to achieve a similar degree of sensation. And so I think in, in Western pornographic culture where a, a lot of men are circumcised, we tend to think of male sexuality as being this thrusting, masculinized, uh, pounding kind of experience. And I think in some ways that may be a result of the fact that uh, American men don't have the most delicate tissue that they would have had 
remaining on their penis. And so if they did, it's true that the mechanics of sex change significantly. You have delicate tissue and you are going to approach uh, interacting with somebody in, in a different way because your own sensitive profile is changed. And um, uh, yeah, the contact between foreskin and labia is a very, very exquisite, very, very delicate kind of experience. You wouldn't want to just, you know, ram a, a rod in there, which I think is, uh, again, a sort of view of male sexuality that's become common in the U.S. that I think does have uh, adverse effects for uh, for many women. Mm, yeah, I agree. So someone has talked about how to deal with the trauma of being potentially excluded or ostracized from your group if you're the one person who has not been circumcised. Uh, right. And um, I have experience of this. My My ex and his brother are both from a Jewish family and were neither of them circumcised because their mother refused. Um, both their parents are doctors and she refused on ethical grounds. Uh, right. And uh, that caused a lot of awkwardness. And in fact, she, um, she didn't allow the grandparents to babysit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that caused a huge rift in the family. And the reason she didn't allow them to babysit is she didn't want them to see that the boys had not been circumcised because she right. thought that would cause even more trouble. Um, I mean, that is a social question. So maybe it's out of your remit, but I don't know if... You- oh, I've, I've, uh, I've thought about this, this issue a lot. And I'm, I mean, part of my background is in psychology and studying social systems and so forth. So I'm, I'm happy to talk about the social and structural issues as well. Um, on, on, the, on the matter of if you're in, for example, an, an Orthodox Jewish community where there's a strict adherence to ritual practice and so forth, first of all, your parents probably would, would circumcise you, but suppose that they didn't. And then you grow up and you start to notice that you're different from the other boys and so forth. What I would say is that, first of all, if the community has practices of ostracization whereby your failure to have undergone an involuntary genital cutting practice is something that is held against you as though you somehow are inferior, I think the community has moral reason to reconsider the, the basis on which it uh, uh, treats children with love and acceptance and care. If the thought is that the child will be somehow treated poorly because they didn't, as an infant, have part of their genitals removed, I would say that whoever's treating the child poorly is the person who needs to change their behavior, not the child. But nevertheless, let's say that uh, the child grows up and says, you know what, I really identify with my Jewish heritage. I, I want to be a part of this covenant in this particular way. Well, this particular Jewish child has an option available to him. He can, at a time of understanding, when he acknowledges the value of the ritual and sees it as something that is going to connect him with a deity and so forth, well, he can undertake circumcision at any time. And in fact, it's going to be something that has very serious a symbolic meaning for him in the same way that people who convert to Judaism, they might undergo a circumcision as well. And it's their way of saying, I really want to be a part of this group and I'm willing to experience, uh, put up a sacrifice for that. So uh, the, the opposite case would be uh, somebody who was raised in a Jewish family who was circumcised when they were an infant and who grows up to, to resent that that was done to them. There's an important asymmetry here. The person who wasn't circumcised but wants to be can still be circumcised. They have an option available to them. Whereas the person who was circumcised and then says, I don't actually subscribe to the beliefs of my parents. I find this practice barbaric. 
I see it as the worst aspect of Judaism. It makes me feel resentful about being a part of this community. Uh, I have been contacted on numerous occasions by Jewish men who feel like they don't have anyone they can talk to in their community. They're concerned that they're going to be ostracized or laughed at, or they're going to get into an argument with their parents, or their grandparents will see them as creating trouble and so forth. And they'll privately come to me because they know I work on this issue. And they'll say, every time I go to the bathroom or take a shower or have a sexual experience, I look down at the most private part of my body and I see that I have a scar. I've been engraved with a sign of my parents' religious beliefs and I reject those beliefs. This person, unfortunately, has no recourse. They have no way to undo what happened to them. And I think, again, they, they have every rational right to feel very deeply aggrieved at having been marked in a serious and extensive and invasive way on the most psychosexually significant part of their body on behalf of beliefs that they may not share when they grow up. And, and so that asymmetry to me is of extreme ethical importance. I acknowledge that somebody might deeply identify with Jewish culture or identity and wish that they had been circumcised. And my, my uh, response to them is to say, you can get circumcised whenever you decide that that's how you feel. Uh, but when I get contacted by men who say, I hate that I was circumcised, and I really don't like that I have this symbolic scar on my penis that, that reminds me of, of beliefs and values that I don't share, uh, I say to them, I'm really sorry. Yeah, there's nothing you can do. And so I, I think that asymmetry has to be kept in mind. Um, Brian, there are two more questions that I'd like to put to you um, before we end, because I'm aware I've taken up a lot of your time. Oh, this is, thank you for being so generous. It's really uh, a pleasure speaking with you. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to... Um, but I don't want to abuse your, your patience. Not, not at all. Your, your questions are so thoughtful, and uh, I, I'm really glad that we've been able to get into some of the nuances here. So I'm, I'm happy to talk as much as you have questions left to ask. Thank you so much. Well, here are a couple of questions. One is um, someone on Twitter asked me, what do you think average, he puts in inverted commas, not scientists or influencers or doctors, people can do to help push towards all gentle cutting on children being banned. And I know that you don't favor a ban, but let's say rather than banned, um, just um, we would like the practice to become obsolete. In the United States, the, the vast majority of circumcisions are done in this sort of quasi-medical secular context of hospitals or outpatient settings. And there's some evidence to suggest that the best way to make the rates drop in a given state is to delist circumcision from Medicaid or from the uh, government health insurance. And in the states where that was done, the rates dropped quite a lot. And it's for a very simple reason. If I, as the parent, go in and the doctor says, shall we go ahead with the circumcision? And I say, well, I don't know. Am I going to have to pay for it? And the doctor says, yes. Then the parent just pauses for a second and they go, oh, well, is it medically necessary? And the doctor's going to have to say, well, no. They're going to say, well, could it be done later if the kid really wants it? Yeah, the doctor will say yes. And they'll say, well, like any cosmetic surgery that somebody might want later in life, that's something that they can address on their own. There's no reason to impose it on them now in case they don't want it. And that simple pause and reflection is enough for many parents to decide that they don't want to do it. Some parents have to be very resistant because, again, it's so ingrained in medical culture in the United States that doctors will sometimes be insistent and nurses will ask repeatedly parents, shall we go ahead with the circumcision? Shall we go ahead with the circumcision? And parents who've done their research will have to be very resistant. And so I, I'd like to say that, you know, we could intervene at the point of doctors and say, doctors, you really need to just lay off and stop pressing this on parents. 
But I, I think that parents are going to have to educate themselves and arm themselves with a very strong no. And I think that in terms of advocating for legal change, two things would be helpful. One would be uh, continuing to try to get circumcision delisted uh, on insurance because it's a medically unnecessary procedure uh, that's done to a child. And the second reason, uh, or the second approach would be to uh, change the period uh, in which men can raise a lawsuit against their doctor uh, for uh, uh, wrongful surgery. Um, the, again, the statute of limitations period is so tight that at the very time when many men become conscious of what happened to them and are resentful, they have no legal recourse. But I think if men could sue their doctors uh, once they grew up and said, uh, I didn't want this to happen to me and I didn't consent to this, I think doctors would think twice about doing it. I think it's 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 strange that doctors aren't anyway obliged to tell parents that it's not it's not medically necessary and could be done at a later stage if the child wished it. I think it's odd that they don't have to say that anyway. The process of informed consent for circumcision is a disaster in the United States. Very often what happens is the, the mother is just given birth and she may still have drugs in her system. She hasn't necessarily researched this issue. And someone will come up and say, you know, go ahead, shall we go ahead with the circumcision? Again, it's not said like, have you, you know, it's not that the parents are asking to do this. I mean, in some cases they are, but for the most part, the doctors, and the nurses are sort of asking the parents whether they should do it as though it's just part of the birth process, like clipping the umbilical cord. It's like, well, we'll go ahead and clip the umbilical cord and then do the circumcision. And most, most parents don't know what that means. They don't understand that it's a surgery. They don't understand that it doesn't need to happen. They don't understand it's going to be painful for their son. Um, they don't know any of these things. And so, so they just kind of go along with doctor knows best kind of attitude. And uh, it's, not, it's not informed consent that almost any of these parents are giving. They don't know the risks. I mean, they don't seriously understand that death is possible, that that can happen if the child has, for example, a, a co-occurrent condition. Um, these things are not disclosed to parents. And so I'd say in many cases, you have invalid consent uh, being used as the gateway for performing a surgery. And, uh, and that was the one law lawsuit that was, that was successfully raised in the U.S. was when uh, the lawyer argued that the consent was invalid. I have I, I have also a slightly related question, which is, I was surprised to find that I thought, I don't know how I ever found this out, because um, I've never been a babysitter and, and actually looked at small boys in any great detail. I didn't grow up with, I didn't grow up with brothers, uh, or with male cousins uh, of my age. So I don't have any visual memory of this. But at some point, I discovered and I thought it was general knowledge that the foreskin is adheres to the um, glands um, and that gradually the tissue that causes the adherence, I don't know what the technical uh, term is, gradually that though that in adherence dissolves and it becomes mobile. Right. And that happens at some point, at some point between birth and puberty, maybe even a little longer than that. But you, do, you aren't born with a mobile foreskin. You're born with a foreskin that is stuck to the, to the penis. And many people have, many people told me in response to my tweet that um, this is not general knowledge in the US among doctors uh, and among kind of well baby clinics. And therefore, many doctors advocate that parents forcibly retract the foreskin. Right. Uh, on their infants, and there are a lot of reports of people of doctors also forcibly retracting 
foreskins and just tearing, you know, right. just forcing this thing apart. And I'm quite, I'm quite astounded by that level of ignorance. Uh, this, this is a serious problem and a lot of injuries are caused because it would be sort of like trying to wash the inside of your vagina or something with, I mean, doctors have this idea that they need to get in there and somehow see what's going on. The point is that the foreskin is adhered to the head of the penis because it's protecting the penis. That's what it's there for. It's keeping contaminants out. It's protecting the urethral opening. And so some people have suggested that the, the reason why they have this finding that, that non-circumcised boys have a slightly higher risk of urinary tract infections may just be a side effect of the fact that doctors are, are tearing this membrane prematurely and creating injuries where an infection could take hold that otherwise wouldn't happen. Again, it sort of would be weird to think that this natural protective covering is somehow disposing you to infections. It's, a, it's probably keeping, you know, for example, in the, in the diaper, it's keeping urine and feces away from urethral opening. Uh, it's there for a reason. And so it's true that doctors in the U.S. are so astonished when they see a child with normal genitalia that they don't know what to do, and they cause these just profound injuries. It's excruciating also to the child. And they think, well, we've got to get in there and see what's going on. So just, yeah, warning to doctors, you should never, ever, ever forcibly retract a child's foreskin. It will, I mean, it's uh, the foreskin is adhered to the head of the penis like your fingernails adhered to your finger. You shouldn't be pulling that back to, you know, somehow clean underneath it. You should only clean the parts that are already exposed. Uh, and the foreskin will retract on its own. It may take three, four, five, six. It can take up to 10 years. Um, but uh, this is a, a massive misunderstanding among, among American doctors. And it's very good evidence of the fact that American doctors are completely clueless. I mean, they're just, they're marinated in this cultural ritual. And they don't even know basic care of normal male genital anatomy. And again, my European colleagues are astonished and uh, alarmed at the fact that, that American doctors don't know this. Just to raise a related um, a related issue, which is phimosis. Right. So there are some medical reasons uh, in some cases. I think this is a rel relatively rare cases, but there are cases in which the foreskin doesn't, uh, doesn't become mobile within a normal time scale, or I think the foreskin is too tight or there are other issues and so there are medically necessary circumcisions that are conducted. Um, and actually, uh, when I announced that I was going to do this podcast, someone I, I chat to a, a, a lot on, uh, on Twitter in private messages, who's become kind of a friend of mine, told me that he just wanted to say that although he, has been circum he was circumcised at age 17 because of phimosis, mm -hmm. he wanted to say that although he's glad that he was personally circumcised because it solved uh, an actual medical issue. He's very opposed to infant circumcision, and he wanted to put that out there. I do also, one of my close friends in real life was circumcised at age six because of phimosis, and he has since begun to wonder whether he really did have phimosis or whether just the doctor, this was in the US, just didn't realize that the foreskin could still be adhering to the head of the penis at age six. Right. So, um, Almost certainly at age six, you shouldn't be performing a circumcision for phimosis because, again, it's well within the period of natural um, uh, disintegration of the, of the membrane that connects the foreskin to the, to the head of the penis. So uh, this is something that happens in the U.S. They talk about um, what they call natural phimosis and as though it's a medical condition. And in fact, in, in the United States, you, you can't obviously, you can't just perform a circum, you know, any surgery on a healthy child. So you have to put something down as the diagnosis. 
And what's amazing is that in the U.S., they'll put down natural phimosis as the diagnosis that they're treating. In, in other words, they're saying, we're, just, we, we're going to pretend that this is a disease state so that we can justify uh, performing the surgery. The problem you think is, the natural yeah. there would be a bit of a giveaway. <laughs> well, they might, have a, they might have a slightly different name for it. Sometimes they'll just say circumcised male or uncircumcised male, and that will be the diagnosis. Like, what? How is that? <laughs> I'm not sure what the medical condition is here. Um, so the thing about phimosis is that um, a very well-controlled study was done in the, uh, Copenhagen in Denmark where circumcisions are only done for medically necessary reasons. So there, there's very little circumcision done uh, outside of religious uh, groups uh, that aren't medically necessary. And so they have a very controlled way to look at exactly how uh, likely it is that someone will need a circumcision for medical reasons. And before age 18, it's less than one half of 1% of boys will need a circumcision for, uh, for, to treat a, a true medical problem. In the case of phimosis, you don't, also mostly don't need a circumcision. Most of those cases can be treated with a steroid cream and gentle stretching, so you don't have to do a surgery at all. And then in cases where you really are having a problem and you know, the kid is 17 or 18 and still can't retract the foreskin and it's causing problems, in some cases, you can do something called a perpuchoplasty, which is where you make a little bit of an incision into the foreskin, but you still preserve most of the tissue. And then you can, again, it will retract. And again, in Europe, this is what they do. They think, well, we're going to try to preserve this tissue, this erogenous normal tissue at all costs. And we would only perform a circumcision if we really had no other recourse. Whereas in the United States, as soon as there's a little bit of difficulty pulling back the foreskin and the kids, you know, past puberty, they say, well, we sign them up for a circumcision. That's the only thing to do. And they should first try a steroid cream that involves no surgery. And that will resolve about 80 percent of true cases of phimosis. Mm. So someone else has asked, and I wanted to put it to you, how did you come to be become the go to guy for on issues of circumcision? Sure. So, so I was raised on the West Coast of the United States where circumcision rates are relatively low. And so some of my friends were circumcised and some weren't. And it just wasn't something that was really on my mind. The way it came onto my radar was when I was uh, at the University of Oxford and we had to write a blog post every month for some event that was happening in the news. And I had run out of things to write that, that month. And I, I, I saw this news item come up about something to do with circumcision. I think it might've been that cologne case that I mentioned earlier. And it kind of, I just realized, oh, I, I don't know. I don't know if I have really thought about this before. And so I put together a blog post where I tried to apply standard medical ethical reasoning to circumcision. And my conclusion was that it shouldn't be done if, if the child is healthy. Uh, and, and this set off this firestorm of intense responses in the comment section where you had some people swooping in to defend circumcision and talking about all the health benefits. And you had other people swooping in to say, I feel mutilated and harmed and no one will listen to me. And so I realized that I had touched off a nerve uh, totally inadvertently. And then a couple of other things happened. The American Academy of Pediatrics came out with its policy. And then these European doctors wrote a rebuttal to the, the American Academy of Pediatrics. And so I started to see that something was brewing here. And I, I went to my boss at Oxford, who at that time edited the Journal of Medical Ethics. And I said, you know, I think this is going to be an important bioethical debate in the coming years. It touches on a lot of really tricky stuff about medicine and religion and uh, political theory and so forth. So maybe you should consider doing a special issue of the Journal of Medical Ethics on this topic. And he said, that's a great idea, but I have other things that I'm working on. So why don't you go ahead and lead that project? And so I thought, okay, well, if I'm going to do this, I want to make sure I know everything I can about every aspect of this topic. And so I educated myself 
by reading essentially everything that's ever been written on circumcision. Uh, and in that way, I became an expert on the topic. So in subsequent years, when people needed someone to review a paper or someone had a question or they needed somebody to make a comment, uh, there was somebody that they knew uh, had a, a, a deep body of knowledge on the topic. And so I've, I've continued to keep up to date. And, and that's how I, uh, in some sense, became the go-to person. Is there anything we haven't covered that you think it is important for people to know? I'm so impressed with the uh, reading and, and uh, preparation you've done. Uh, this is by far the most nuanced interview I've been able to have. Usually oh, somebody, so somebody just, you know, raises the kind of level one questions and 45 minutes go by and we've, we've barely scratched the surface. But I, I really feel that you've uh, investigated this in a way that allows us to touch on some of the more difficult and, and uh, sensitive and nuanced issues. And I really appreciate your, your having taken the time to prepare. I guess I will say one thing, which is that I'm very close to this literature. And so I'm able to detect trends that are happening. And one trend that I see happening is that defenders of ritual male circumcision are starting to put arguments in the mainstream bioethics journals where they suggest that we should tolerate minor forms of FGM. And the reason they're doing that is because they realize that there's a currently a double standard and they want to build a buffer of protection around male circumcision. So they are saying, uh, if we use male circumcision as the standard of harmlessness, there are clearly forms of female genital cutting like ritual nicking that are less in invasive. And so we should allow those things to happen. Now, I've talked to women who have undergone ritual nicking and are very upset that it happened, and they describe it as traumatic. And also, they rightly think that any risk of a knife being brought to their genitals is too much from their perspective, especially on behalf of religious norms that maybe they don't adhere to. And so I'm totally on board with the anti-FGM activists who say, even the ritual nick is impermissible. I agree with them. It's wrong to bring a knife to a young girl's genitals, even if you're only planning to do a little scratch. So what's happening now is that defenders of ritual circumcision and defenders of what they call female circumcision are now banding together to make these sort of parents' rights arguments where they're saying, well, listen, you know, we tolerate all sorts of things that parents do and it's important religiously and culturally and so forth. So here's a whole bunch of arguments for why we should tolerate not only male circumcision, but also minor forms of female circumcision. Mm -hmm. And... I think if we want to push back against that, people who are invested in children's rights are going to have to band together across the sex and gender spectrum. And so that means that those who are advocating for intersex children, those who are advocating for girls, and those who are advocating for boys should notice that they have a common interest here, which is that they're trying to create a layer of protection around the people who are most vulnerable in society, which is little children who can't say no who can't defend themselves, who aren't in a position to resist what's happening to them. And in, to my mind, it's that vulnerability that's the ethically important dimension of this debate. And so I would really like to see, and, and by the way, there are activists who are famous for advocating against uh, FGM who are totally on board with advocating against male circumcision and intersex cases. So Soraya oh, Murray yes. is, um, is an I example. Yes, yeah. sorry. Yeah, Ayn Hirsi Ali is one as well. Uh, and similarly, uh, Henny Lightfoot Klein, who was one of the early uh, activists. Um, so there are there are a number of people who see this as a children's rights issue. And I think that the most vocal uh, proponents of anti-FGM arguments tend to want to keep this separate and say, oh, well, you know, male circumcision is distracting. But there's a very strong tradition um, 
within uh, within anti-FGM activism of making it about a, a gender-neutral claim that it has to do with the child's right to bodily integrity and the issue of consent and so forth. So I just want to say to those who are on, sitting on the fence about that issue that there's a storm brewing with reactionary religious forces across the sex and gender divide who want to say, we need to tolerate parents' ability to cut their child's genitals, and that includes girls. And so I want to, I want to form alliances with people who say, we want people not to cut children's genitals, regardless of the reason, unless it's necessary to preserve their you know, bodily autonomy into the future. Um, so that's just a, a call for coordination and cooperation. There is obviously a balance we need to strike between parents' rights and children's rights, because we, we neither can nor would it be desirable to police every aspect of how parents bring up their children and how they choose to interact with and treat their children. But at the same time, parents don't own their children. Um, and we do set a lot of limits on what how we allow parents to treat their children. And I think that is correct. So for example, we don't allow, we certainly allow parents to wash their children's genitals, but we don't allow parents to touch their children's genitals in a way that is specifically designed for sexual stimulation that would be then child abuse and that's a very um that's actually quite a a subtle difference i mean it's it's a difference in intention that's that's quite a subtle difference and it's it's quite a different difficult thing to prove but we still have that as a principle and i think that's correct and this is not subtle yeah, I've, I've heard from men who say, listen, you know, we have a very strong tradition in this country, uh, especially of telling children that they need to be very careful of any adult trying to touch their genitals without their permission. And when children are very young and they can't wash themselves, it's true that whoever their caretaker is uh, has to help keep them clean. But otherwise, we're pretty cautious about how we allow adults to, to relate to children's genitals. And I've heard from some men who say, listen, um, this feels to me like something akin to a rape because somebody violated my private parts when I was at my ultimately vulnerable state and they did something far worse than touching me. They cut part of me off. Now, the parent didn't intend it to, to do it for sexual stimulation for themselves, but from the perspective of some of these men, they say, it doesn't matter what they were intending. If somebody has sex with me and they didn't intend to do it, you know, uh, for sexual stimulation, but they were just, you know, for some other reason, or they thought it was in my best interest, it still is my right to, to be able to determine who gets to interfere with me. And when somebody does it before I'm even able to say no, that's even worse. So that's the sort of argument that they make. And, and I, I, intention is very important. If you want to sort of make a judgment about the moral character of a person and why they might do something, it's very important to emphasize that parents authorize genital surgeries, whether it's for girls, boys, or intersex children, because they think it's in the best interest of the child. No parent, except for some yeah. creep or monster, is doing this because they somehow think it's fun. Um, they're doing it because they think it's, it's good for the child. But my argument is that they're mistaken, <laughs> that it's, it's, it's something that should be left to the child to decide for themselves because it's a very, very personal issue. And a lot of people are very resentful that this was this was done to them. So you were making the point about uh, the limits that we draw around the sorts of actions that parents can permissibly take toward their children. So people who want to, to do circumcision will say, well, we need to tolerate parents' decisions. We don't want to interfere in family life. And they're totally right. But we already have 
a lot of limits that we've drawn about actions that we say it's not permissible to do these things to children. And so what we need to do in deciding how to judge any particular practice is to triangulate between the cases we're already pretty sure about. So in the U.S., we're sure that you shouldn't cut a girl's genitals to any degree unless it's medically necessary. And we also have prohibitions on tattooing. So a, a parent who wants to tattoo their child's skin under the age of 18 would be arrested as a form of child abuse. But, but what that entails is that if they tried to tattoo their child's foreskin, that would also be a form of child abuse. But we're in such a weird position in the law that if, if they wanted to just entirely cut off the child's foreskin and then go tattoo it over here, that would be permitted because we are totally inconsistent in, in what limits we draw around the sorts of things that's okay to do to children's bodies. The reason why we don't tattoo children, by the way, is because we realize that it's permanent. It's something that affects them in a mm. personal way that they might later wish hadn't happened. And, you know, when people say, well, you know, we do all sorts of permanent things for our children. We send them to school. We teach them a language and so forth. My thought is, uh, first of all, if somebody teaches you something or raises you in a very strict religious way, there's you can potentially throw off the trauma of having been uh, raised in a really repressive way or something like that. You can change your mind, but you can't change your body. You can't undo a circumcision. So that's that's a difference there. And the other thing is about teaching languages and so forth. It's like, what's the alternative to to keep your child mute and lock them in a closet or something? That itself would obviously be abusive. So what you're doing when you're when you're raising a child is you're trying to equip them with the tools and the flexibility to be able to live their lives autonomously when they reach adulthood. And so you shouldn't be doing things that that impair or prevent their ability to make very very personal decisions for themselves later on. And and the option of not speaking a language is not one of those decisions. Everybody is going to have to speak some language and it may as well be the one that their parents speak. And probably that's helpful because it will allow them to function in society. But not everyone needs to be genitally altered. And a lot of people are very resentful that they were. Absolutely. It seems to, I mean, it, it all seems to come down to this is an unnecessary thing that you're doing to the child. It's irreversible. And if, if it's something that provides advantages to the adult, then they can choose to have it done at a later stage. It's, there's no um, time sensitivity to this procedure. It doesn't have to be done in infancy. Um, I keep coming back to this because it seems like the the basic uh, bottom line. Well, the, those who those who um, promote infant circumcision are it's sort of telling what they say. They'll say, "Well, if you don't do it in infancy, the child might not want to do it later." And their argument is, "So you know, it's really good for them. So we better make sure that we do it at an early age when they don't have a choice." But the other side of that is they're acknowledging that people might not want this to happen, that they probably wouldn't choose it later. And again, overwhelmingly, if you weren't circumcised as a child, you do not elect for it as an adult. And the reason might be that you are happy with your genitals the way they are. You wouldn't want to have that tissue removed. But again, pro-circumcision people will say, oh, well, they're just being irrational. You know, they don't know what's good for them. And so we need to, we need to paternalistically make this decision for all boys at the point of birth, rather than respecting people with the, the ability to make decisions about their own body. So yes, what's the final um, message you would like to give to people? What what do you think that that people who are listening to this, who really want to, um, who are concerned about this, who would like to see the numbers of circumcisions um, lessened, who would like to see this pro procedure become obsolete, um, 
where would you um, recommend they go for further resources and who would you recommend they support? Oh, that's a great question. So there's a group based in Seattle called Doctors Opposing Circumcision, and they have a number of resources that they have up online. There's also a group called Attorneys for the Rights of the Child run by uh, Stephen Swoboda, who's somebody who's been working on this for some time and, and advocates against uh, medically unnecessary surgeries for all children. Uh, others who are active in the UK, there's a group called 15 Square, I believe it's called. It used to be called Norm UK, but they provide resources for men who are injured in having unnecessary circumcisions. Very often in the UK, it's done for uh, by older doctors who still think you're meant to do circumcision for, for normal phimosis. And uh, so they sometimes have very serious problems where they have uh, complications that are that are very unpleasant. So they provide resources. Um, it's it's interesting because uh, there's not funding for groups that want to try to advocate against male circumcision. You have billions of dollars being spent to help groups that want to advocate against female genital cutting. And so you've got charity organizations and nice uh, uh, advertising and conferences and so forth. But if you're a group that wants to try to say we shouldn't be cutting boys' genitals, where nobody funds you. You're not getting money from the WHO. You're not getting money from uh, the U.S. government. You're not getting money from from uh, charity groups. And so, uh, unfortunately, currently, it's it's a, a ragtag group of people who are trying their best to to try to uh, uh, advocate with the resources that they have. Um, there's also a wonderful website called Beyond the Bris, which is uh, uh, run by. Uh, Jewish proponents of a, a non-cutting alternative to circumcision. There's also a group called Jews Against Circumcision, which has some important resources. Um, so these are the sorts of uh, places I would look. You can also go to my academic webpage. I have a whole bunch of papers in which I make some of these arguments more detail and provide primary sources. So that's uh, academia.edu or ResearchGate, and you can just Google my name, which is Brian Earp, and those resources will be freely available there. Great. We'll put all of those links into the show notes. Thank you so much, Brian. Um, it's been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you for being so generous with your time and so thoughtful about this issue. Likewise. Thanks for uh, having me on and for your incredibly thoughtful and nuanced questions. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, what people say and the responses. And I'll be on Twitter to answer questions if people have them and want to send them my way. Me too. I'm going to put on my special flak jacket though, and um, <laughs> goggles and um, protective headgear. Yeah, <laughs> so it could get interesting. <laughs> Thank you so much. Of course. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and Two for Tea. 
All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.